Does anyone here still get a print paper? Yeah, some of you? Nice. Uh, there's a typical demographic, I won't say who, but that's awesome. You are the most likely candidates to remember uh, the story a few years ago in 2010 of a mine collapsing in Chile. Anyone remember this? Some of you? Well, on August 5th in 2010, the tunnel that gave underground access from the surface to this mine collapsed, trapping 33 men underground, and rescue attempts began immediately. Nobody on the surface had any idea if there were any survivors, let alone where they might be in the mine. So the ref rescue efforts began by trying to unblock the tunnel that had collapsed. Unfortunately, that caused a secondary collapse, and so that method was abandoned, and the rescue team began boring six-inch holes all over the mining site. Meanwhile, inside the mine, the 33 men had gathered at the direction of the shift supervisor in a little area where they sought shelter, a refuge area. And for weeks, these men heard the sound of drilling from above. They had prepared notes in case one of these drills would happen to penetrate their shelter. And on August 22nd, two and a half weeks after they had been trapped, a drill broke through. They tapped on the bit. They taped their notes to the bit. They were ecstatic. It was a miracle they had been found. They would surely be back on the surface with their families soon. They had been on the very edge of despair, but now they had hope that they would be delivered. And their safe rescue took another 57 days. These men spent a total of 69 days trapped underground. Their deliverance was delayed. They became discouraged over the two months between initial contact and finally returning to the surface. They wondered if their rescue would ever even happen or if they were destined to die in this mine. Delayed deliverance takes quite a toll on the human spirit. Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this morning, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Exodus in chapters 5 and 6, and it will relate a little bit to the mine. And how's it going so far? Are you engaged with the text? Feeling immersed in the book of Exodus? Excellent. We're going to walk through the next two chapters, and we're going to examine how God interacted with these real people. What happened? How did God show himself? How did the people respond? And then we're going to relate this 3,500-year-old bit of history to ourselves. How do we apply these truths today? And I don't know about you, but it was such a good reminder for me the very first week when Pastor Dan reminded us that, yes, the human characters have changed from Moses and Pharaoh to you and I, but this is the same God. You need that reminder? So let's begin in a word of prayer, asking that this same God would continue to speak to us today, and then we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the weekly reminder of the resurrection of Jesus, and thank you for your word. Thank you that it illuminates for us pieces of your character and nature. God, thank you that you are knowable, that we can come into your presence with a real tangible knowledge of you. And we worship you today. Thank you for Jesus, who is our deliverer. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you recall last week, we had Moses at the burning bush. 
So all-time highlight in Scripture, right? It's one of the greats. And Moses receives his direct call from God. And we didn't quite get to the end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, Moses continues to negotiate with God to the point that God gets quite angry, uh, but agrees to send Aaron, Moses' older brother, along on the mission. And so Aaron comes out to Midian, meets with Moses. Moses, Aaron, Moses' wife Zipporah, and his sons go back to Egypt And the end of chapter 4 ends like this. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they had heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So now God has met with Moses, given him the mission, his calling, and now it is time for the mission to begin. And, good reminder, God has been totally right thus far. He told Moses that once he gets back to Egypt, he should gather up the elders of the people and that they will listen. And then he's supposed to go to Pharaoh and bring the people out of Egypt. So Moses must be feeling pumped, right? He already kind of, he whined his way into getting his older brother to come along, And then he gets back to Egypt, he tells the Israelite leaders what's up, and they believe him, they worship God, and so he must be feeling quite emboldened, so far so good. And then he goes to carry out the first step of the two-step mission from God. In chapter 3, verse 10, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt. So step one is Pharaoh. So let's look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. So Moses follows through. (laughs) He goes with Aaron to Pharaoh and proclaims God's demand. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go. Now this is going to be a common refrain for the next seven chapters. Let my people go. You might have a Sunday school song ringing in your head. But God makes a demand of Pharaoh. And maybe you noticed right there in the story that Moses and Aaron are not pretending to have any authority. They're simply saying what God has said. And Moses is following the script so far, right? He met up with Aaron, he went back to Egypt, he gathered the leaders, he explained the deal to them, they believed, now he delivers God's message to Pharaoh. Now we're going to come back to this a little later when we relate this text to ourselves, but maybe you notice that God has the right to ask anything of anyone. Like God already placed some demands on Moses at the burning bush, right? We saw that last week. And now Moses has more or less obeyed thus far. He's now standing before the king of Egypt, and now God places a demand on Pharaoh. So how does Pharaoh respond? Verse 2 and on. And Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. 
Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply these people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But remind them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Now go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And the slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? So the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are. You're lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get back to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. So the Lord, the God of Israel, says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says, no. And did you notice his justification? I don't know that God. He mocks God. The Lord? Never heard of him. He probably had heard of the God of the Hebrews. But he's like, who is he? Never heard of him. Get back to work. Pharaoh believes that his slaves have become lazy. And this introduces us to the start of an epic power struggle. Pharaoh truly believes that he has all of the power. He's the most powerful man on earth at this point, and he very likely also actually believes that he is a god. So he makes a power move. No. Now, I want to pause here and talk through some application for ourselves. What can we take away from this? What have we learned about God, and what do we learn about ourselves? Well, firstly, it's that God still makes demands of people today. Like, creator God, the one who made all of the stuff and all of us, he cares. He cares how the stuff gets used and how we function. He's the author of morality, as in because God exists and has spoken, therefore there is right and wrong, good and evil. He makes demands. He's not a silent God in fact, all throughout Scripture, God mocks silent gods. He makes demands. And did you notice, it's not only of people who acknowledge him as the one true God. He makes demands of all people. God didn't choose the Egyptians as his own people, as his special possession. He chose Israel. But no one is exempt from obedience to the Almighty. And maybe this scene between Moses and Pharaoh feels a little bit familiar today. Does anyone else feel like they can think of some world leaders who might think they're a god, who think they're untouchable, 
nothing sticks? <laughs> or what about whole nations who do not serve the one true God, but instead they turn their noses up at him? They sneer at his commands and his precepts. Maybe they even introduce things that are directly opposite to what he's commanded. And haven't you heard similar phrases like that? God? I've never heard of him. Why? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Doesn't that sound a little bit like the mantra in the West right now? Anyone else? Like, we don't need this God of yours. We don't know him. We don't like his commands. We're not going to be obeying them anytime soon. I've had the privilege of having a couple of these conversations over the last few weeks, and they're both fascinating and a little bit terrifying, definitely heartbreaking. And then we see this overreaction from Pharaoh that maybe also feels familiar today. Right? Remember, this is the most powerful man on earth. He could have just brushed off Moses and Aaron, ignored them. He still owns the slaves. Just get back to work. But because Moses points out God's demands, he goes even harder against them. Does that seem familiar? Like maybe like Christian athletes getting canceled for refusing to conform to the social narrative or wear certain symbols. We had one two weeks ago where their post-game interview was edited so heavily that it actually mistook what they had said. Or Christian speakers being banned from university campuses or social platforms. Doesn't it feel a little bit familiar that people don't want to hear the commands of God? And this is about pointing fingers. But it's about pointing fingers back at myself. Because the desire of every single human heart is to be a God unto themselves. Friends, <laughs> Pharaoh is just you and I. We want to reject the words of God. Jeremiah, the prophet, tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. That you and I, we have the same proclivity towards hardening our hearts to the things of God that Pharaoh has. And God's word tells us actually that our hearts are so hard that there is no amount of moisturizing or massaging that is going to soften them up. What we need is a heart transplant. And praise be to God, this was his plan from the beginning. So hear these words in Ezekiel 11 as God describes restoring his relationship with his people. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Friends, part of God's rescue plan for us is a new heart. It's a heart that is soft towards him. And friends, if you have received Christ, Jesus is your Savior and Lord, you have a new heart in you. So, so guard yourselves from letting those little corners of your heart dry out. We're going to see this in a moment with the Israelites, but when things go wrong or circumstances seem to be going against the promises of God, we can do a whole bunch of different things. you got options. Maybe you're prone to secretly think that God has stopped caring. 
or maybe, maybe there's just a little something that's outside of God's control. Or maybe that uh, now this problem's gotten just a little too big for God to handle. Or maybe you're more like me. You try and take the bull by the horns, wrestle the situation into obeying you, make a power move, try to regain for yourself what you thought you were going to get out of this life. And when that stops working, it always does for me. Maybe then you start getting a little bitter towards God. Anyone? You start the finger point. You promised. You said this to me. This is not how this is supposed to go. Maybe the doubt starts creeping in. Maybe despair even a little bit. Hardening up the corners of what was once a soft heart. Well, let's look at what happened for the Hebrews in Egypt. Verse 19. The Israelite overseers saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they say, said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So now we see Israel's confusion, right? We, we want to recall it's like 20 minutes ago that they're praising God for hearing their cries and promising to rescue them immediately into despair and into finger-pointing at Moses and Aaron. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. Literally, you've made us reek. We stink to him. And Moses kind of looks around at the mess. He feels the same way. So he cries out to God, why? Look at what is happening and explain yourself, God. You probably noticed that last little jab in there. You have not rescued your people at all. You ever yell that at God? That's an intense prayer. <laughs> and it's not necessarily wrong. Like, you are allowed to tell God the truth from your perspective. But there is just a little something that Moses has forgotten. If you recall at the burning bush, when God told him to return and tell the leaders, he told Moses the leaders would believe. That's in chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read a little bit for you. The elders of Israel will listen to you. And then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him, and so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God already told Moses that this is part of the plan. This isn't out of left field. God's GPS is not going recalculating route, recalculate. Not at all. This is the timeline that God planned for. After that, he said, then I'm going to let you go. And that brings up an interesting part of Moses' plea with God. Like, he's basically calling on God to remember his promise at the burning bush. Right? You promised to rescue us. You have not done this at all. 
all the while forgetting part of the promise from God. Some selective hearing, maybe. I get accused of that. But we do this too, right? It is so appealing to just focus on the positive things and maybe slide back door the hard parts of the Christian life. We're going to come back to that. But let's examine how God responds to all of this. And this begins in chapter 6 with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? So in Israel's confusion, God comes to comfort Moses. And he does this in a couple of ways. And first, God basically says, Calm down. I am going to rescue you. I promised I would, and I will. And then he reminds Moses how he intends to do this with my mighty hand. He reminds Moses, I revealed myself to your ancestors as God Almighty, El Shaddai, the Mighty One, And Pharaoh can posture and puff out his chest and exert all of the force he wants. His hand is not mighty, it's human. This power struggle is not a struggle at all. God reminds Moses how powerful he is. I am God Almighty. But look at what he ties it to. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. He's powerful, and he's personal. God says, Moses, trust me. (laughs) Trust me. I'm God Almighty. But more than that, I saved a part of myself for you. Your ancestors didn't get the full revelation of my character and nature. My name, Yahweh, was hidden from them, and I have chosen to make it known to you. Oh, and by the way, I remember all of my covenants that I made with your ancestors. I promised to give them a land, to make them into a great nation, and I am doing that right now. 
The deliverance that was delayed for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to happen for Moses and Aaron. So how does Moses respond? So he goes, he repeats the encouragement to the Israelites. They're way too discouraged to listen. And that discouragement seems to kind of rub off on Moses because then when God asks him to carry on carrying out the plan, Moses objects. And you maybe noticed the sneaky problem in there. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's not that God's the problem, and it's not that Pharaoh's the problem. Now Moses thinks he's the problem. If the Israelites didn't listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? I am not a good enough communicator, God, for your plan to work. My inability is greater than your ability, God. And then chapter 6 comes to a genealogy. It won't be on the screen, but you'll see it in your Bibles. And maybe we ask why. Maybe you ask that every time you come to a genealogy in the Bible. Why? Well, this one basically, whoa, hot dog. (laughs) This one basically lays out that Moses and Aaron, they're brothers from the tribe of Levi. So Abraham has a son Isaac, has a son Jacob, has 12 sons. Those are the tribes of Israel, one of whom is Levi. Moses and Aaron are from this tribe. Their parents are Amram and Jochebed. And all of this reminds us that Aaron is not added into the story for the sake of the plot. This is not a fairy tale where having the older brother show up adds good drama. No, this is what actually happened. The generations are listed correctly and unashamedly. If you look closely, Moses' father marries his own aunt, which God is about to prohibit at Mount Sinai, which points to this being the blunt truth. If an Israelite is going to make up this story after the fact, they are not going to add in details like this. This event really happened. These are really the people who really participated in it. So now let's go back to Israel's confusion. Do you resonate a little bit with that part of the story? I certainly do. They get all inspired and encouraged as a nation because God has heard their cries for help. He's promised to rescue them. But then the deliverance is delayed, at least from their perspective. Does that feel familiar to you, brothers and sisters? Anybody else? Have you had an experience where you felt like God was kind of revealing his plan for you? You get all excited and you walk into it. Then suddenly it doesn't go quite how you expected. Or maybe you're going through something and you're thinking, man, I know these things to be true about God. I know that God is like this. But you're not experiencing it. Or you feel confident that God is directing you into this thing. And so you, you do it, but then the timeline ends up being way longer than you expected or way shorter. What happens to our hearts? Well, you see the response from the Israelites and from Moses. First, it's confusion. God, I thought you said. Then it kind of moves into doubt. Did I hear you right? Then you get into the anger. You're doing this all wrong, God. And then maybe the root, you get to the fear. Moses is like, I don't even want to go back in front of Pharaoh. Is that feeling close to home? You somewhere in that cycle right now? Are you crying out to God right now? But God, you promised. You said you would deliver, and you aren't. 
Is that a little bit raw? I've certainly had times like this in my life, just alone yelling up at God. Why? What is going on? Now you got my hopes up for nothing. It would have been better if you would not have promised to deliver because then I wouldn't be crushed when it doesn't happen. Anybody else ever feel like that? That's okay. <laughs> it's good to talk to God about the hard things in your life. And it's, it's good to be emotional. But maybe you caught the sneaky implication in there. Hidden in there is the sneaking suspicion that God can't actually do what he says. He's either unwilling or unable to bring about his promises. Delayed deliverance does something to us that tests our faith. It puts strain on our trust in God in a way few things do. And maybe it makes us kind of zoom in on one little portion of what God has said and forget some other parts of his word, right? Maybe you, you have a tough experience, you try and do the right thing, okay, I'm going to use God's word to kind of counteract my circumstances, so I need to think about this. Okay, I'm supposed to take heart because God has overcome the world. How am I supposed to take heart? It doesn't look like you've overcome the world. You immediately forget that that promise in Scripture comes after, in this world you will have trouble. Just conveniently leave that part off. Or you try something else, okay, I know, God, you're working all things together for my good. It doesn't look like you're working all things together for my good. And we forget that following Jesus means picking up a cross, not comfort. It means denying ourselves, not pleasuring ourselves, because gaining everything in this world is nothing compared to your soul. And friends, this morning is not, it's not a like button it up if you're hurting, pretend it's not happening. It is not that at all. This is the reminder that we should not be surprised by a delayed deliverance. If you, if you believe that this world is all that there is, then hurt in this world can be utterly devastating. But friends, this is your reminder, this is not your home. This is the wilderness. This is not the land that has been promised to you. And also, it's the reminder that God is not shaming you for confusion in your life. Not at all. He's trying to comfort you. Recall how he comforted Moses. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. Remember, he reminds Moses, I'm God Almighty, I got this, I'm powerful, but I'm also personal. God says, Moses, trust me. I'm God Almighty, but more than that, I saved a part of myself for you. Your ancestors didn't get the full revelation of my character and nature. My name, Yahweh, was hidden from them, and I've chosen to make it known to you. Oh, and by the way, I remember all of my covenants. I promised your ancestors to make them into a great nation, to give them a land, and I am doing that right now. Friends, God says a very similar thing to us. God says, trust me. I'm God Almighty. I am who I am. But more than that, I didn't even reveal myself fully to Moses. He didn't get the full revelation of my character and nature. Jesus Christ, 
who is the perfect image of the invisible God, who is God made flesh, who is the real deliverer, was hidden from Moses. But I have chosen to make him known to you. Oh, and by the way, I remember all of the promises I have made to you. I promise to never leave you nor forsake you. I promise to clothe you in my own righteousness instead of your own effort. I promise that your suffering is preparing for you a weight of eternal glory. I promise to return and in doing so wage war on sin and death. To destroy every wrong and make right my creation. And I promise to do it with such tenderness that I will be wiping away the tears from your eyes. God didn't say don't cry. He said trust me that I'm here with you as a comfort. I didn't say gut it out in your own power, exerting force, and hoping that that translates into acceptance from God. I said, trust me that the work is finished. And it wasn't you who did it. I did. Friends, I was struck a couple weeks ago reading my Bible just how many times in Jesus' ministry he says the phrase, do not be afraid, over and over and over and over and over And so often, it is connected to someone's deliverance being delayed. So friends, how is the consistency of your heart? Has it grown tough and rigid from disappointment and confusion? Is it in grave danger of becoming hard to the things of God? Maybe you're already rejecting the demands God has placed in your life. Or are you soft towards him? Are you receptive and obedient? And are are you sensing God's comfort in your confusion? This life is confusing. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) It's confusing. It's not simply categorized and sorted out so nice and cleanly. And it's not fair. It's not. But when we're reminded that we shouldn't expect it to be, there can be immense comfort. Friends, we have not been delivered yet. It's coming. This isn't your home. And so you're right when you look around and you say, man, this is not the way things should be. This is so ugly and damaged and sad. You're right. But brothers and sisters, we have been promised a land, one without sin and sadness, one without cancer and miscarriages, one without corruption and delusions, one without division and divorce and disagreements and darkness. So when you look around at the things of your life and it makes you weep, good. You're right. Look at the world and weep. That's real. We're in the wilderness. But then lift up your eyes. The deliverer has come. He is promising you total restoration, unimaginable wholeness. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So take faith. Pick up hope in the wilderness. Pick up faith, brothers and sisters. Trust that when God promises your deliverance, his mighty hand is greater than whatever obstacle seems insurmountable. He is coming to rescue and restore your deliverance is delayed, and so may faith be credited to you as righteousness in your waiting. Let's pray together.
Lord God, we do thank you for today. And this morning, Lord, I'm thankful for the promises in your word. We're told in the New Testament that all of your promises, the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, that you are strong enough to accomplish anything that you have promised us. And so, Lord, in our confusion, when life seems uncertain or backwards or just wrong, Jesus, would you, by your Holy Spirit, grant us faith? Would it well up inside of us a a hope in Jesus that is unexplainable, that is a, a peace that surpasses understanding? Jesus, we're so grateful that you are our deliverer, and we worship you as God this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.